Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. To the Scottish Rugby Podcast brought to you by the Scottish Rugby Blog. I am Cami Black and joining me this evening uh, for this week's podcast, I have Rory Baldwin Hello. and John Anderson. Hello. Um, it's the third part in our trilogy uh, book club looking at Behind the Thistle, which is a book looking at the history of Scottish uh, rugby through the words of the players. Uh, it's written by David Barnes and Peter Burns. Uh, it's a very good book. We are using it, though, as a way of kind of analysing probably three of the, um, what some would say, best forgotten eras of Scottish rugby. So this is the Frank Haddon era, which was episode one, Andy Robinson episode two, and we've, we're now on to Scott Johnson, which is the conclusion of our triumvirate of... Uh, of a dark period in Scottish rugby, uh, and what we're trying to do is, is is analyze it and see was it as dark as we all remember. I think the answer so far has been sort of John and Rory. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. it's been yeah, yes. Um, we, we're gonna I'm gonna start though with a bit of positive because we are organising uh, something we're calling the Big Club Dinner. And it's going to serve as our kind of season finale for the podcast, but it's going to be live. And we're going to be broadcasting on our Facebook page. It's going to take the format of a club dinner. We're going to encourage anybody who tunes in or listens afterwards to donate the money they would have spent at their club dinner if they're able to or on a night out to their local rugby club to help the clubs keep going uh, because of the impacts of coronavirus. If you haven't got a local club, then we're going to be encouraging people to make a donation to the My Name is Doddy Foundation as well. Um, no club dinner would be complete without speakers. And, um, well, what a lineup we have for you. Um, we've got Squidge Rugby is going to do us a speech. We've got Scotland International Rona Lloyd, uh, who also does her own podcast. She's going to do us a speech. We've got international referee Holly Davidson who's also going to be speaking. Um, we then have British and Irish Lions legend and Scottish rugby legend Scott Hastings is going to be speaking. Bush, the absolute cherry on top of the cake is we're going to have a speech on the evening from Mr. Dougie Donnelly himself. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think I'm not sure whether the podcast is going to recover from this. Bush, there you go. Um, so we're absolutely delighted that all those people have agreed to speak on the night. Uh, we've got a couple of other irons in the fire, so we'll see if they come off. Uh, if you keep an eye on Twitter and on the blog, um, all the details are there, including how to set up your own virtual bar. Uh, I've also popped down the podcast email, which is podcast at scottishrugbyblog.co.uk if anybody has any questions uh, about how to access things. But we, we will make sure we have full instructions up on the blog 
uh, in plenty of time. There's there's some basic kind of instructions on where you can find the event and how you can access it for now. But we will be promoting the living hell out of this between now and then. It's on the 24th of July, which is a Friday night, half past eight. I expect it will last around a couple of hours. Um, in between speeches, you will have myself, Rory, John. Uh, we've got Al Kerr joining us. We've got Sandy Smith joining us. We've got Ian Hay joining us. We've got the full team. We are going to effectively be the top table. And what we'll be doing is in between speeches, we're going to review the season that's just gone, have a bit of a chat and maybe talk about some of the speeches and some of the things that have come up. So we're really hoping that's going to be a good night. It's free. You don't have to pay anything up front, but we will be asking anybody who who tunes in uh, either on the night or later on to um, to make a donation to their local club. Uh, because many clubs haven't been able to run the club dinners this year or the sevens tournaments, and that's obviously an important income stream for them. So, like I said, we'll be promoting uh, this as much as we can. Anything you can do to help is much appreciated. Uh, John, are you looking forward to this? <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, I I got I got very very excited when I see. Obviously, you'd kind of been. Um, hinting at the speakers that you had got but when, when you put it all on the sort of reveal on twitter i was it was like it was like match day i was really excited I was like, oh, yay! <laughs> it's gonna be good it's gonna be good it's gonna be very good rory are you excited you got have you got a club tie right because we're all wearing our club ties or club ties on the night yeah um i don't know if I have a club tie i do have a scotland 1990 grand slam club uh, tie that i could possibly reclaim from the dog yes um so I'll try. I'll try and nice. try and wheel that out. I think that's. I've got good. to get, give a shout out to uh, Kev Smith for sending me a club tie already. Um, <laughs> he he he, ans- he answered the appeal uh, with with a poem. Um, so uh, thank thanks to Kevin. A donation was made to the the Doddy Foundation on on Kev's behalf for that. So thanks, big man. <laughs> Um, yes, so um, we will be wearing our club ties. We hope you will be too. Um, I think shirt and ties up up top, um, party down below, probably. Um, I don't know what we'll... <laughs> still, still a giant Zoom call, isn't it, son? Yeah, it is on a Zoom call. I mean, whether or not um, we stand for the toasts might be a bit too revealing. We'll, we'll see. We'll work something out. <laughs> that has to happen now. <laughs> <laughs> we could maybe change shorts in between while the speeches are happening so we've got a different pair on every time we have to... <laughs> Stand up and toast. We'll, we'll work something out. But yeah, um, before that, um, one of the next couple of podcasts we'll be doing live on Zoom as a bit of a, it's a bit of like a, you know, when they, they run the tattoo at Edinburgh without any of the fireworks, um, just as a bit of a practice run. So we'll be doing a dry run at some point with one of our future podcasts. So um, you'll have an opportunity to to see what we all look like beforehand. We sort might, of, some of us may shave, some of us may not. We'll see. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, playing the game behind closed doors except you're not you're letting the fans in yeah it's a bit like uh when stand-ups go to this out to the sticks and try the try try the material <laughs> yeah just yeah. to see how it works my uh my girlfriend saw uh dylan dylan moran doing that in, in Inverness, and i think 15 minutes his set lasted for yeah I don't. I've. I think that a lot. He of was comics... trying out wine as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah, we we will be trying out wine on the uh, the club dinner, of course, as well, uh, no doubt. Um, but on to um, less happier topics now. Uh, after the rush of excitement, there we are looking back at Scott Johnson's tenure as Scotland coach. Um, we might come on to at the end of this a bit, a bit more about his the legacy that he's left. Now he's 
he, he's off down under with Australia now. Um, and, and also there's been a recent kind of article uh, written by Jamie Lyle on Rugby Pass where he's interviewed Jason O'Halloran, which has been quite illuminating, I think, in terms of some of the legacy of Scott Johnson. So we, we'll touch on that in the end, but we're mainly looking at his time as caretaker coach for Scotland. So in our last episode, I should have done like a mad American style, you know, previously on the Scottish Rugby Podcast. <laughs> Andy Robertson left in disgrace after being beaten by Tonga uh, at Aberdeen. Um, and then it's enter Scott Johnson. Now I've got, I managed to dig up the Guardian article from the time. Uh, which is Tuesday the 4th of December that said that they could appoint Scott Johnson as interim coach for the Six Nations. Uh, he'd come in as a tack coach and skills coach under Andy Robinson. I think he'd managed to collar someone in a corridor somewhere and, and get them to agree to give him director of rugby job uh, before Robinson left. Was that before Robinson left? I think it was. I think it was because everyone kind of assumed that he was going to slide into position straight away. So uh, I'm yeah. guessing that we must have known about that. Mm. So Johnson's previously had previously been head coach with Wales, uh, I think on a kind of interim basis as well, uh, and the United States Eagles, as they were known at the time. Um, Sean Lanine was a possible candidate as well. I couldn't find many other possible candidates for for the job at the time. I assume Jake White was linked because he was linked with everything. Yeah, he was always touted what, in any job back then. Yes. See, see what you think about it. See the amount of jobs he was touted for, and it seemed to always be big, high-paying jobs that he took. It's a, it's a very strange one. Like, I don't understand how small nations were linked with him. It's a good. It's uh, he's got a good agent. Must have. You get a good agent. Same, obviously, not the same agent as Scott Johnson, Vern Cotter, and everyone else all shared, or he would have been in there. Yeah, <laughs> very uh, true. That's I forget about. I forgot about that angle on this. Was there not that? Yeah, I'm sure that, that there was yep. some. Yeah. There, I don't. I can't remember who else. Maybe Cockerell. Yeah, I think they I all. Know. Yeah, they all definitely shared the same agent. Um. So. Oh no, Rennie. That was probably it. Yeah. The um. So first thing he does is he appoints Dean Ryan on a short-term contract as forwards coach. Yeah. For the Six Nations, um, and Scotland, uh, that first Six Nations, it Scotland managed to end up third. I think it was the first yeah. time in a long time. So this is the 2013 Six Nations. Um, the uh, Scot- the opening game was uh, for Scotland was at Twickenham. Now I was at that game at Twickenham, um, and it was it was a good. I mean, in in, in uh, behind the thistle, all the play- you know all the players talk about this as being that was a good game for Scotland, although they they, they lost 38-18. Yeah. Um... I mean, looking back at the looking back at the match report on the site and looking at kind of memories of the game, um, I think this was this probably Scott Johnson's era was probably the start of what we would consider the kind of modern attacking Scotland approach. Um, interestingly enough, Townsend no longer being the Scotland attack coach, but um, you know his first first squad he's calling up like Pete Horn, mm. Sean Maitland, Tommy Seymour, uh, Alex Dunbar, so. You know, guys who were going to be the the kind of spine of that the that back division for for a long time. Obviously, Hoggett had already had a few caps by that point. Um, you know, he's also given first caps to Grant Gilchrist and Ryan Wilson as well. So this sort of the Scotland team as we know it. I guess some of the figures that we maybe quibble these days, but um, back then they were the kind of young young Turks in in form. Um, and yeah, the you know the there were some some good results in that. In that opening tournament, 
Yeah, I mean, that, um, that England game as well was also notable for a, a debut for a certain kilted Kiwi winger who had made his way over uh, to Glasgow at the time, Sean Maitland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, scored that. Scored scored after nine minutes. I thought, here we go. This this is this is what we've been looking for. Annoyingly, Ryan Grant also nearly scored, and I had money on him as the first try scorer. <laughs> and I was I was in line to get five hundred pounds because I put five on at hundred to one, and he was inches from the line, and we were up in the tough corner right in front of the try line. Um, my main memory of that day is my dad buying a bottle of wine at Twickenham because it was cheaper than buying it. He worked out it was cheaper than the pints nice. in terms of alcohol nice. content, which I thought. And also you're at Twickenham, so you've got to, you know, you've got to win, win in Rome. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, yeah, but you're right, Roy, that back line for that England game, it's Rui Jackson 10, um, Matt Scott and Sean Lamont in the centres, and then Maitland, Hogg and Visser as the back three. I mean, it's a fairly... That's that. That's fairly new, and that's kind of what can take variations of that, and what then continue yeah. for the next few years, really. Yeah, uh, I mean that was the that, that was the kind of um, the the start of that of that kind of uh, that backline. Obviously, Finn Russell's some way off yet, but um, the and there and to be fair, there were a few strange things. Like I think. Um, did Johnson not persist with uh, Sean Lamont in the centres for a wee bit? He did, Until, yeah. until kind of Dun- Dunbar um, hit, his, hit his stride. Um, and Duncan Taylor was just, he was just, I think he was picked for the A-team just before that uh, Calcutta Cup. I mean, I think probably Johnson would have been looking at the depth with one eye on his job as director of rugby. Um, I mean, the, Italy were dispatched pretty well. Yep. But the, be- the bench for the Italy game was Pat MacArthur, Murray Lowe, Jeff Cross, Kellick, Dave Denton, Pergos, Dunkey Weir, and Max Evans, um, which is not you know it's not it's not a star-studded bench would be would be a, a nice way to put it I suppose. No, and again um, the, the for I mean the forward pack you've got I mean Ryan Grant was new, but then you have got Ross Ford, Ewan Murray, Jim ha- well Richie Gray, fair enough, but Jim Hamilton. Kelly Brown and Johnny Beatty. So I mean, a lot of these guys. I mean, Rob Harley was at six. You've got a couple of newbies in there, but there's nobody. There's nobody really within that pack that stuck around still, or as you could say, is still was went on to be kind of a consistent part of Scotland for the next few years out of that pack. Yeah, the front. I mean, the front row. We were there was a few articles on the just probably just before Johnson took over, talking about the the kind of the depth of prop. Um, which is a theme that obviously other other guys have, have written about on the site over the years. And I think you know, you and Murray Star was starting to uh, starting to to fade a little. Um, and the, you know, there was a there was a fair problem at Tighthead. WP Nell was kind of on the scene, but hadn't you know was was some way off uh, qualifying to to actually play. Um, and yeah, there was there was obviously some some areas that the the depth was was not quite as a. Uh, quite as good as others i mean the talk about the back row chris fizarro was kind of was seen as a, as a bit of a kind of a young talent i hope but never really never really um pushed through at international level obviously there's john barkley as well who i'm sure we'll we'll talk about who didn't seem to fall out with johnson initially because he's he's actually in and around most of the sort of early squads mm. and tours and things but I think that was because I think at that point he had issues at Glasgow. I mean, was he at Glasgow still at this point, John? He, go, he, he, he I just saw it there. He moved to Scarlets just probably start of around 2013, 2014. 
But when yes. did so? So he was he still in the Glasgow team at this point? Because we had the breakup of the Killer Bees, but he was the last to go, I think. He he was still in the Glasgow squad, but he was not playing regularly. Oh. Um, he was he was certainly towards the end of his time at Glasgow. Similar to John Beattie, actually, he he really kind of fell away as as been to the point where it, you know. A guy like Barkley leaving your club, you you, you would kind of see it as a, a massive loss, but at the time it wasn't really considered as such. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean his form must have must have drifted a little then. Oh yeah, yeah, significantly. Yeah, the other the other interesting position during this time is is hooker because Scotland have all sorts of issues with the line out at this time, and I think it kind of predated this with the Robinson era, but and yet the. After Ross Ford, as as has was the period in Scottish rugby for about fifty years, um, there was nobody really give. I don't want to say nobody pushing because nobody was given an opportunity. I mean that Italy game, Pat McArthur stays on the bench, and you would think you know it's a thirty four ten game. <laughs> you don't really understand what Pat McArthur had to do to get on the pitch at that point. Yeah. Because you had Pat McArthur, there was, who was Dougie Hall uh, was still kicking around, I think, at this point. Um, you would have Scott Lawson as an, still considered an option, and he flits in and out. But, but we're a long way from them, from McAnally and Brown kind of unseating Ross Ford. Yeah. And I don't think any, but none of the others were really given a chance, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, Stuart McAnally at this point was. Um... He was playing for the for the A, the A side in the um, against uh, against England, still at uh, at at uh, blindside flanker. Yeah, the um, the Italy game, of course, very famous for uh, Stuart Hogg's try, yeah. where he intercepts off uh, Luciano Oquera, who, to my mind, always looked like a provincial accountant. He never looked like a rugby <laughs> player at all. I have to Google him now. He looked. He just looked. He didn't. He just looked like some bloke. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could, you can imagine, like you go into uh, oh, yeah. an accountant and you go, "Oh yeah, I trust that guy because he's he's clearly been an accountant all his days." Yeah, looks really kind of really solid guy. You know, like quite small as well, five foot seven. Not not to- not not towering, so he doesn't intimidate you. But you know, just has has quite a dark features about him. Just kind of looks like he's the sort of guy you can trust. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting because I think both Scotland and Italy at this stage were both having issues over who plays ten. Yeah, um, Tommy Allen, Tommy Allen Gate, for calling that a gate. That, yeah, that was was in, <laughs> in this period. When does is Rui, Jack, Rui Jackson still playing for Glasgow Warriors? Still, still at Glasgow at the time. Yeah, Duncan Weir's just come through. Um, uh, and is about to usurp uh, Rudy Jackson and send Jackson on his way down south quite uh, yeah, quite soon I after. Actually, found an article by Cami wishing talking about the Toxic Crusader, wishing for like a some sort of nuclear waste accident to create a hybrid of Rudy Jackson and Duncan Weir to answer to, you know to fill the. Did I rewrite that? Complete player. I don't know if it was a full article, but you certainly mentioned it in a, in passing that you kind of needed a bit of each of them. Yeah. I only recently watched the Toxic Avenger and I must I must admit I was absolutely thrilled. It was everything I thought it was going to be and more. Do you do was it the Toxic Avenger or Toxic Crusader? 
because they're very the toxic. Toxic Avenger. Toxic Avenger is different from Toxic Crusader. Is it? Ah, oh, right. Okay, there you go. Toxic Crusader was a cartoon um, about a janitor who got covered in nuclear waste. Um, right. And it was, I think, it was like an environmental one, uh, kind of kind of thing. He also like lived with lived on a junkyard with a um, a dog. We're not double check this now. Um, I find I find the quote. Yep. In our uh, Six Nations Roundup from 2013, there was a cartoon in the 90s called Toxic Crusader, where toxic waste caused some people and things to merge together. And I sort of wish we could do that with Weir and Jackson. If you could take Weir's kicking and defence and combine it with Jackson's eye for an interception and pass, you'd have a fearsome number ten. But then part of me wonders if that's not just Tom Heathcote, Cameron Black, 2013. <laughs> it wasn't. Spoiler: It wasn't Tom Heathcote. <laughs> Second spoiler, just to just to say, Toxic Crusader, nineteen ninety nine, nineteen ninety one animated series based on the Toxic Avenger. We were watching the same sort of thing, guys. It's yeah, all good. All right. It's a save while there. We go. That's good. Coke, Coke and Pepsi. So there was <laughs> there was a uh, Toxie who is the main protagonist. He's he, Melvin Junker was a wimpy janitor at a health club, uh, and uh, he got covered in um, toxic waste and turned superhuman strength size and strength nozone was a test pilot who flew through the hole in the ozone layer and crashed into some radioactive pepper and gained the appearance of a blue skinned humanoid with a wheel for a right foot and powerful sneezes emitted from an enormous nose major disaster a military soldier who gained gained the ability to control plants after falling into a swamp Headbanger, they had two he- two heads. It was a Dr. Bender, a cantankerous mad scientist, and Fender, a surfer-like singing telegram boy. And a Junkyard, who was a junkyard dog and a homeless man who merged together. <laughs> Cartoons <laughs> in the 90s were so much better. Than, uh, yeah, it was an interesting uh, collection. Yeah. Um, back to, uh, it's not that we don't want to talk about Scott Johnson's time in charge, but um, there we go. Um, the next game after, the, the Ireland game was a really interesting one in this, because this is the daft one where we, like Ireland had 75% possession or something like that, and then, but Scotland managed to um, win 12-8. And I think this is, from this time I kind of remember Scotland being, uh, Scotland having a really good attacking game, but actually the defence wasn't bad. And I wonder if that's kind of a hangover from Andy Robinson. Yeah, I mean, interesting. You'd actually uh, you did a post where you compared the stats of Robinson and Johnson over the over a Six Nations and a Summer Tour, and actually they were much of a muchness in terms of try scored, def, you know, attack, defence, scrums, and things like. And in, indeed, the, I think the results were identical. Um, so yeah, I think. Uh, the, there certainly seemed to be a more attacking mindset to, to Scotland, but maybe not much else was was changed. Yeah, um, there's they talk. I mean, Jim Hamilton, I think, talks about that game in in the book um, that they that Scotland stole the Irish lineup ball quite a lot. I, I couldn't, I didn't remember that game being. Like, I just remember kind of lots of lots of defending on the line. There was a lot of opportunities that Ireland had that they coughed up from the lineout. Um, Jim Hamilton, for all his, let's say, other um, hyperbolic ways of, of discuss, describing things, he is actually accurate in this instance. They, they did steal a lot of Irish ball. I think it's also worth noting as well, you know, in terms of that, that Irish side, you know, they were 
missing. So you didn't have, you know, Johnny Sexton. You've got kind of Keith Earls is in there. It's Brian O'Driscoll kind of coming to the tail end of his, you know, he plays for another 15,000 years, but he's, he's kind of coming to the tail end of his powers. So it's not a vintage Ireland side. And I think this was the disgraced Ireland fly half Paddy Jackson's debut. From I memory. was trying not to mention, the but yes. Thing, yeah. no, I'm just referring to his disgraced Irish player, Paddy Jackson. Yeah, I think I'm okay. Legally, yeah. I'm okay with that. With, yeah, I think one that. of the guys uh, in the in the the roundtable at the end suggested that if Sexton had been playing that game, he probably wouldn't have won it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jackson uh, did pull. No, uh, to a use his full, full name, disgraced Sorry. disgraced rugby <laughs> player Paddy Jackson. Disgraced rugby player Paddy Jackson um, managed to outdo. Um, our previous discussions about kickers, um, he, he he got one out of three for a staggering thirty three percent off the tee, which wow. is a good effort. That's 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 le- that's less than Dan Parks used to average. Exactly. Um, we um, th- I think that was probably jo- Jim Hamilton's best game in a Scotland shirt. From memory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was reading back these match reports, and Jim Hamilton's name kept popping up in the positive. Yeah, and I even wrote some of these match reports. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah, this was probably this must have been his uh, must have been his, his peak. Yeah. Um, then and to be fair, he is on the cover of the book that you guys are talking about. But, he is, to be fair. Is he? Where is he? There is he on the cover? He's not on the cover of my book. The playing rugby for what am I Brian thinking Thistle. of? Oh no, I'm thinking of a different one. I'm thinking of the book that that my dad has that actually belongs to him. Um, I'm like the, the behind the thistle copy, which is more. Um, You're not going to let this lie, Rory, are you? No, well, I can't. I can't participate in book club, can I? I'm just hoofing it, reading all the articles off the board. Um, the, no, there's another book which is like every game of stats on every game of rugby Scotland ah, right. played for 200 years, and Jim Hamilton's on the front of that. Yeah, strangely. Um, the next couple of games, I mean, there's there's the loss loss to Wales at Murrayfield. Um, and then there was the loss to France, which I found 23-16. Yeah. The, um, so the, the Wales game was was another Craig Joubert fiasco. Oh. Which, you, I mean, you could argue that not only did he boot us out of the World Cup, but he screwed up everyone's representation on the on the, the Lions tour that year as well by not put, not allowing Scotland to put on a good show in Wales. Was that not? It was at home. It was at Murrayfield that year. Or even against Wales, sorry, against Wales, uh, yeah. in front of in front of Gatland. Yeah, think about it. Ryan Grant, he was on that tour, but should have been announced at the start, but didn't go. You know, that was the game where um, was that not the game where the um, the Care Bears were doing their their um, their not taking the hit thing yeah. and making it look like we were pushing early. Yeah, that's right. And, and they just had they just had Uber eating out the palm of their hands, and uh, yeah. It was a re. That's right. That's that was a really frustrating game yeah. to watch because they they just yeah they milked everything. I, I mean, in hindsight, it's sort of you kind of admire the the raw criminality of it, but um, yeah, it was frustrating <laughs> when you were watching it. Yeah, I mean, the Apparently. book talks about. It. I mean, I think it's just the um, yeah, it's not a. It was a yeah. It wasn't a vintage um, game of rugby. What do they say about the France game? The France game. I mean, they don't talk. They talk about the island, and the main thing in the book is it covers the um, the England game and the 
um, Ireland game in terms of quotes speak to uh, Stuart Hogg and Greg Little and Jim Hamilton. The really interesting thing, I think, that changes, and this is why it's a shame that we couldn't hold on to Dean Ryan, because Jim Hamilton, one of his quotes after says after the England loss, Dean after the England loss, Dean Ryan dished out a pretty brutal analysis. There was no crisis meeting, but he spoke to every forward and asked us to tell him what we felt our primary role was as an international player. None of us did our job properly against England, so we had to strip it back and sort it out. Rugby is a simple game. If you don't do the basics right, you won't win the game. There's no point looking pretty, running around and offloading if you don't get the win. Which I don't... I think that kind of honesty and brutal analysis is is quite interesting. and it's. I think it's what Scotland then get with Vern Cotter. Yeah, there is, there is there is running about to be done, but the pack needs to be less involved in that and more involved in giving the team direction. Yeah, to kind of go forward. I think I wrote yeah. I wrote the uh, match report for the France game. I very rarely wrote match reports. I must have had. See, for, uh, yeah, for me the the this was the one was it not where Michelac had an extremely schizophrenic game. Yes, this one. And he was having an absolute nightmare, throwing complete no nothing passes to passes to nobody, and it was you know real Keystone Cops comedy. And then he punched Stuart Hogg in the back of the head when after uh, an off the ball incident or something. They ended up in fisticuffs. I think Hogg Here probably go, got penalised for it. And then after that, Hoggy was off his game, and Michelak suddenly started having a blinder. So I said, um, this up until the 44th minute, Michelak had been playing on a different level to the rest of the French team. Like a highly evolved space baby, he seemed to be thinking in four dimensions. He popped to no one, ran without support, and kicked into space only he could envisage in his advanced frontal lobe. Then he yeah. clattered Stuart Hogg in the back of the head with his arm. Neither Nigel Owens nor the nearest touch judge spotted it. Television replays were damning, and it's likely he'll be cited and will almost certainly face a ban. He should have been sent from the pitch, not just for 10 minutes, but for the rest of the match. When Owens caught up with the action, Hogg and Michelac were grappling with the Frenchman still visibly throwing jabs. Whether it was a rush or adrenaline or being brought back to earth, the incident seemed to trigger something within Michelac, and suddenly things started happening for him. Within a short period, France were ahead, and although Laidlaw pulled Scotland level, it was only a matter of time before France crossed the try line. They did so twice. Yeah, and I don't think he was cited or anything. No, I don't think he was afterwards. Probably before the days of TMOs. I don't think anybody gets... I think in the last games, it's boys... I I think anything goes in last games of tournaments because it doesn't really matter after that. (laughs) Nobody's playing international rugby for a while. Um, the yeah, yeah, you can grab people's grab people's genitals and everything. Do whatever you want in the last game, yeah. Um, and then wait for a pandemic to come and let your ban pass. Yeah, Joe Marler. Um, smart, smart. So I mean, but that's I mean, I think that was the first time in a while. Scott, I mean, Scotland finished third, I think, in this tournament. Yeah, um, the first one. Yeah. Yes, third. Nice. On joint, jo- I mean, it's joint third with Italy. France, France got the wooden spoon, even though they beat us. Italy ended up fourth. Italy won two games that year. That was a weird uh, year for rugby. France yeah. As well, yeah, I think that was. Did I think that was something else that we talked about in one of the roundups? Is the BBC came out? Uh, they had there was like a couple of good games at the start of the first weekend, and everyone said. I think they said this is better than in Inverdale probably said this is better than sex and bacon rolls or something and then the tournament was absolutely dire for the rest of it. <laughs> I'm trying to see who else Italy beat that year. It must have been it must have been Ireland. It was Ireland, I believe, yep. 
Yeah, France and Ireland drew as well, 13 all. You're right, there's a terrible, terrible. England. Italy beat Ireland 22 15. England um, only managed to beat Ireland 18 11. Hmm. That's not a good Irish side, is it? No. So England, but England 18, Italy 11. I don't remember that game being that close. Any, it's a weird. That's a weird Six Nations. Um, the next thing that Scott, jo- well, after this, after the Six Nations, then they announced Vern Cotter as 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 uh, taking charge. So Vern Cotter is announced in the May, according to behind the thistle, and as uh, the. Um, the SIU massively bodged this up, and I, I think Scott Johnson's obviously involved in recruitment because he's quoted the Guardian article I found from the time. Um, he's talking about being involved with the recruitment, and in behind the thistle, they say basically Scotland approached Vern Cotter without asking uh, permission from Claremont first. Yeah. So Claremont spat the dummy out and said, um, no, he's got to see out his contract. So any opportunity there had there might have been to buy him out just went. I think it's like, you, you know, you're dealing with French, mad French teams with mad owners. Don't, you know, annoying them isn't, isn't the way to go if you're going to try and snatch one of their players or coaches. Yeah. <laughs> There's a quote from Johnson at the time, though, which is really telling. When you know that, when you when you understand that they've said no, um, and that Scotland effectively poached him, Johnson said, "We delayed our announcement out of respect to Claremont and Vern as they prepared for the two most important games in their season. We are satisfied that we conducted our business in an honourable fashion, and we are sure Claremont appreciated our discretion." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he was a chancer. He was an absolute chancer, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, there was a lot of rumours kind of went around that he might, oh, he might, they might, Claremont might just uh, just explode and, and kick him out for, for daring to talk to other people. Or, but then, I, yeah, I think they, they just decided, actually, we'll hang on to him. Yeah, behind the thistle, it kind of strongly intimates that they, they wanted him earlier, but they couldn't get him because of Claremont. So so you then have this period from May 2013 to June 2014 where Scott Johnson continues in interim charge of the team. And Fern, I mean, in the, in the when he's announced, they say he's going to be involved. And then I think it's David Barnes or Pete Burns writing in the, the book is saying that he's, he's often seen skulking the corridors of Murrayfield, just kind of overseeing things and... I suppose at this point his influence will probably start to tell a little bit more in terms of the players he wants that he wants to blood and the mm. way Scotland want to play. Yeah, and John Barkley has signed for just signs for he signs for Scarlets and goes off injured, which keeps him out of the summer tour. And then there's never seen again until the 2015 yeah. World Cup warm-ups. Well, he does. He drifts in and out, but I don't think he was picked. But he did. Um, I think he got invited to train or something to one of the. Now there was now was this in the, Vern- no, the yeah because there was I we'll probably come to it later there was a game against Japan where he got um, off the bench I think when was Jamie- when when was the John Barkley deleted tweet gate well, I don't know there was yeah, a time was, was there was a time yeah. when he was playing for Scarlets and he spat the dummy out on Twitter late one night I think when the squad was announced 
something about being told to your face. And I think that must have been the height of Johnson. That must have been around the time of him and Johnson properly falling out. Yeah, I'm, I'm just seeing if I can find it. But, um... We'll find it soon enough. But um, yeah, but this is, that's, but well, we'll probably come on to it. But then Johnson, we, we then have this period, basically, I don't, I think until the 2015 World Cup where Scotland just don't play with a recognised open side for about three seasons. Yeah. Which I think we, I got yeah. fed up of writing about. Because there was a, yeah, there was a tour, I think maybe later, when Fusaro and Barkley were both injured. Might even have been that one. Yeah. So the um, the summer tour that year is during the Lions. Um, Richie Gray and Stuart Hogg are called up. Stuart Hogg is called up as cover at 10, inexplicably. Um, and plays 10 in a couple of games, I think, a couple of the provincial games. Um, yeah, he did. Ryan Grant gets called up mid-tour. Um, but and plays, I think, five minutes because Scott Borthwick's never seen him play before. Uh, Richie Gray gets gets a game, I think, a test. Uh, Richie Gray gets off the bench in the last test, yeah. That's it. And Stuart Hogg is uh, seen in his speedos the day after the last test in the middle of a street, in the middle of uh, Sydney, I think it is. Um, Sean Maitland had a few games. Oh, Maitland was there as well. Of course, he was. Yeah, Maitland, Hogg, and, and Gray were the the first three, but it was a bit. Um, it's quite a strange, strange selection, even you know, with with Scottish blinkers on, because um, he'd he'd sort of said things like he wasn't going to pick any French players. Then he picked Geffen Jenkins and Mike Phillips, and asked and asked Johnny Wilkinson, who said no. Um, <laughs> and then he was, you know, he would he was he'd come out in the press and said he couldn't afford to pick on reputation, but select on form using the Six Nations as a barometer, and he picked some guys who I've written here, I think, had stinky tournaments, like Heaslip, Carney, Hartley, Lydia, Healy, Gethin Jenkins. I mean, even Richie Gray didn't have a great tournament, so you could have argued he, even he didn't merit a pick. Yeah. But say Kelly Brown was on fire, Ryan Grant was on fire, Simon Zebo, Chris Robshaw, guys like that, yeah. who he didn't, didn't pick, you know. So it was a very kind of, it was a fairly odd selection, Um I mean, they were only going to Australia, and Australia weren't great, weren't that great at that time. So he maybe just drew them out of a hat or something. I don't know. This this was also the Lions tour, though. Let's not forget when he called up the freshly retired Shane Williams from nowhere. Just because he was yeah. ge- again, because he was geographically convenient, because he was playing, I think, in Singapore at the time or Japan. It was. It was. It was, over, yeah, no, it was, it was covering for the press. He was coming over to cover press anyway. Yeah, he's been and, playing uh, in was, Japan, but he was going to—he yeah. was coming in as a pundit. Yeah, and they were like, "Superb, give you a game." Yeah, I—I I remember when I read that, I was—I was working as a sleepover shift um, in a care job at the time, um, and I remember being up quite late when the team was announced, and just like, I—I I actually thought I might actually be asleep, and <laughs> like was trying to try to like pinch myself to make sure I wasn't just like hallucinating. It was oh, mental. But that, that's Gatlin's law. That's what he does. That's it, yeah. That's yep. what he wants. I know, and even when Dylan Hartley got dropped because he swore at Wayne Barnes, no you know, no call up for Ross Ford. No, I mean, but, uh, Hartley got, he got just done for some discipline thing and got um, got the boot. Well, he swore, yeah, yeah he swore at and, Wayne Barnes, didn't he? Yeah, and Rory yeah. Best uh, got called up in his uh, place. Rory Best, there we go. Um, so Scotland go off to the, now the quadrangular, the quadrangular, quadrangular, quadrangular tournament 
in South Africa, where they play with Italy, Samoa, and South Africa. Um, I watched the Samoa game uh, in a pub before going to a folk festival, so that was slightly <laughs> odd experience. Um, it was in York. Um, they, this is where, effectively, I think um, Scott Johnson bloods a lot of players on this tour. So we get Alex Dunbar, I think, makes his... Well, certainly, if he doesn't make his debut, he's called up. Tom Heathcote. This is where I think he fully commits to Tom Heathcote as the future at fly half, which lasts as long as this tournament. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean... Heathcote's starting, Dunbar's starting at 13. You've got um, the, the lesser-spotted Greg Tonks is in the team as well. Um, you've got um, Pete Horns on the bench and Duncan Taylor as well. Who else was in? The, who else was in that um, squad then that year? So, the, so you've got uh, the backs were Laidlaw, Heathcote, Visser, uh, Matt Scott, Dunbar, Sean Lamont, and Greg Tonks, and then up front you had uh, Dickinson, MacArthur, Murray, Gilchrist, Kellock, Strokosh, Brown, and Beatty on the bench. You had Laurie. Low Cross, Hamilton, uh, Ryan Wilson, Henry Pergos, Pete Horn, and Duncan Taylor. Yeah. So it's a. You, you've got a few new in. You've got a few older ones. There's quite a few that kind of then last the last the distance for the next few years. Um, I don't remember Stephen Laurie. Yeah, I, I, the name always crops up in one of those like. See if you were playing pointless and you were looking for obscure Scottish international rugby players, he would be like up there because <laughs> I, I can't can't remember a thing about him. Yeah, other than he's the current Edinburgh forwards coach. That's details that I don't even need to, you know. That's that, <laughs> as that's the other correspondent. Yeah, that's the other side of the road. Um, you know, this this is my home. <laughs> so um, it's. The opening game, they lose 17-27 to Samoa, which I remember being an awful game. Yeah, it was memory. quite brutal, I think. Pete, Pete Horn talks about this game as being, he gets absolutely banjoed by one of the two laggies. He gets destroyed by him, and he still talks about that moment as, he always speaks about it reverentially, as like, welcome to international rugby, son. Just gets moored by him, and then the, uh, the the I think the kind of the the one thing the book talks about then is the game against South Africa where Scotland lose thirty seventeen because effectively the, they'd been written off that Scotland been written off by the South African press. The book's talking yeah. about the fact that, that they're talking about being fifty points, and it's Matt Scott saying that on this tour Scott Johnson takes him to one side and says, "You've got you know." What do you say? Uh, Twelve caps or something? Thirteen caps now. You need to grow up. You need. You're now a senior member of the squad. Yeah. And he comes off from playing South Africa, feeling like he he you know given his best and played quite well. So Matt Scott kind of like identifies that as a turning point in his career. Um, yeah, Scott Scott had a Scott had a great game. I think this this was one um, I've talked about before, possibly that we that we watched on Al Al Kerr's stag do in a pub in Braemar, and I think we got pretty pretty drunk and started an argument with uh, Mark Keohane, the South African rugby journalist, who knows far more about it than we did. But that wasn't how we were feeling at the time, obviously. Um, <laughs> claiming it as a massive moral victory, 
Was he was 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 he on the stag do or did you just happen to bump? No, he into was him? he was on Twitter. <laughs> oh, on Twitter. You, you you I Weird. thought he was in the pub. No, no, um, he was probably in South Africa watching the game. I see. But yeah, no, we were, uh, yeah, we were watching that in the. Managed to find a pub in in Ballater that had had Sky Sports and watched it there. And it, well, yeah, it was a, that was a you know that was a good game. That was one of those games that you see every so often during this era where Scotland, you know, where it clicked to a certain extent. Obviously, it didn't click enough for them to win, but I mean, the halftime, you know, Scotland were 10-6 up. Um, at that point, they still hadn't necessarily learned how to defend a lead or, you know, built the depth in order that the bench can kind of keep them in the in the game. But, um, yeah, they, I think, they, yeah, they were odds at 250 to 1 to win. Yeah. Which then shortened to 7 to 1 at halftime. So, <laughs> And then they scrape through against Italy with the last kick. I think Greg yeah. Laidlock's last kick of the game. <laughs> um, losing the Italy lose to an Al Strokosh walking. Nice. Al Strokosh didn't score many tries in his career either. No. Um, the the autumn's the, the autumn. Now I don't think I'd write these now. I wrote a series of articles because um, about five players. On there, I see these kind of five things Scotland need to do to win, or five things Scotland need to do. It's like a little, it's a standard thing that used to be popular around the time that's kind of fallen out of favour now. Um, these kind of like short articles, and I think it was um, where have we got the? I find the first one. Um, the Scott Johnson talks about there being this being the last chance for some key players to really. Um, show their worth um and and he said he's uh, he's issued a final warning to a number of incumbent players in the squad they're saying he's time's running out and you're not going to have Van hasn't basically hasn't got the time to experiment when he comes in because he's coming in in 2014 and that's a year and a half out from the world cup so the first i mean the first game of the autumn is um this is the is it Japan? It's Japan, yeah. It's our old our old friends Japan uh, at Murrayfield. I think it was one of the we we we'd only played them a couple of times by this point, um, and it had usually been an absolute scalping we'd given them. Um, but this one, I remember watching this game, and it was it was a very entertaining game of rugby. Japan played some lovely stuff, um, probably setting a, a warning out for you know. Um, st- Six or six years later, or, or, or so, but um, yeah, Scotland won comfortably in the end. I think the uh, five players I had um, was being on last chance was number one was Nick DeLuca. Fair enough. Um, I it was s- by that point, yeah. said um, he excites at club level and looks every inch. Of te- he look excites at club level and looks every inch of test class centre. Um, basically, plays well when he plays well. Um, but there are other people coming through now. David Denton, I think, was having a difficult time of it at the time. Interesting. Um, and Josh Strauss was going to be qualifying time for the World Cup. Al Kellock. Now, I think this is why Al Kellock blocked me on Twitter because I said Al Kellock <laughs> was the was on his old uh, was on his. So basically, you had um, Johnny Gray coming through at this stage, and. Also, um, Richie Gray, Jim Hamilton. And there's lots of other options. Ross Ford, um, because there's um, 
that well, I said that the, the Pat MacArthur, Dougie Hall, and Steve Laurie I said were coming through, uh, and then <laughs> you and Murray, who had, who was struggling at this point, I remember that that it's he, one he was unavailable on on a Sunday, but also he was a I said he he's largely a one trick pony. That trick being that he's a marginally better scrummager than Jeff Cross. Ooh. That was cruel. That's... Yeah. Yeah, did did you and Murray block you after that? I don't know. I don't think he's on Twitter. Um, basically, he can't. You can't. He can't. He's getting by on just being, uh, just being good at scrummaging. Um, so, and there wasn't many others coming. We, we were struggling in the front row at this point as well. I think that was the one thing that that Johnson did. He, he blooded a lot in other areas, but I don't really feel that he blooded in the front row as much as he should have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in, interestingly enough, uh, the, the the article you're referring to, Cami, you actually wrote another one a week later yes. with a different list. Um, I saw so I guess Ross, Ross Ford was still on it. Ross Ford was still on it. So yeah, interesting. <laughs> that, um, so this was this was ahead of the South Africa game after they'd beaten Japan. Yeah. This the second list, um, which had Ross Ford, Murray Lowe, Chris Custer, Max Evans, and Scott Lawson. So uh, quite front row heavy. Yeah, um, I think, I, and all I've written under Scott Lawson is Scott Lawson's question mark. I think because yeah. this is coming back to the hooker question that he'd recalled Scott Lawson. And and I could never really get to the bottom of it. Pat MacArthur in particular was never really given a look in. At, at, and whenever he did come on, he played all right. Yeah. Yeah, it was always, it was always quite, uh, yeah, it was, it was always quite, um, quite an impact he made when he came on but I think that the issue was always you know he, he never seemed to be a guy that you could trust to start a match and or you, you know he never really got the chance to put down that marker on the shirt and it was the same at Glasgow as well as soon you know he's always obviously considered you know his club centurion obviously considered one of one of Glasgow's um greats but he still was in and out the side a lot of the time, um, which for your for hookers one of those positions that you tend to see now players nail the position down. Um, obviously, Scotland have the two just now that kind of interchange quite a lot. But you know, you think of the great teams and they have a nailed on hooker, whereas Pat MacArthur could never do that. Yeah, I mean, in the book, um, Scott Johnson's talking about this um, the 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 Open squad being a lot more competitive. And they bloodied a lot of players during the summer with 10 new caps and a new crop of young players were coming through for their clubs. Alex Dunbar was playing great footy with Glasgow. Mark Bennett's form was superb and Johnny Gray was coming through. Seeing that happen was an important step for the growth of the team. Um, so it's it's interesting that he's he's talking in retrospect about giving a lot of people a chance, but it did feel at the time like there was a lot of, despite saying there's a lot of incumbents have to watch their step, I'm not necessarily sure that in this that he 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 demonstrated that with his selections, Rory. Yeah, I mean, looking at your your second piece there, the, you know, those guys who were in a lot of them were on were named on the bench to face South Africa, where obviously they got pretty annihilated um, as a as a collective unit. Um, you know, Maitland was playing full back that day, so Hoggy must have been injured. Um, Is this not the time when now when did to Hog for because it's around this time Hog falls has. This is the next Six Nations, I think, that Hogg has the massive falling out, doesn't he, with Townsend and with Scotland. 
I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come. We'll yeah, circle possibly. back around to that. Um, yeah. So uh, twenty. Um, well, that no, that would have been that was when Glasgow won the league, didn't they? Well, that was in where was that? Was that twenty twelve or twenty fourteen? John Anderson. Yeah. 20, 20, 20, 2015, 2014, 15. All right. Okay. So yeah, I think we're, yeah we've still come to that. So we're, we're this, a wee while away. Yeah. We while away. So Hoggy must have been must have been injured. But yeah, I mean, um, a lot of the guys you're talking about there, Lawson, Cross, Custer, Evans, um, were maybe you you almost wonder if he's mischievous enough to just throw them in there against South Africa, watch them get annihilated, then he's got the excuse not to. To pick them and get on with the kind of the re- regeneration project that he he seems to be thinking about. Yeah, the um the the interesting thing in the um that article pre the um South Africa game where against Japan and this is uh, this just jogged my memory that this the World Rugby brought in these changes to the scrum laws at this point where the hookers had to make an attempt to strike the ball to try and make scrums more competitive. And Ross Ford had never been taught how to hook a ball because he's right. back and row. So they, Scotland was still trying to drive other teams over the ball. And against Japan, Scotland's scrum success rate was 55.5%. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, it was so Amazing. embarrassing watching that, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was just, uh, yeah, so, so difficult. And people were making excuses at the time, saying things like, oh, you know... Um, it's the flexibility required. He doesn't have the. He can't. He can't actually hook because he's not got the flexibility. It's like no, he's just not been taught, and he's done his whole professional career not doing it. Yeah, and, and, it, and you, as it turns out, no one was teaching him line out throwing either. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, how many? How many caps did he end up with? Hundred and hundred odds. It's the yeah. big. Is it most caps Scotland international? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for 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 completion, by the way, Stuart Hogg missed the entire autumn uh, series, or was due to due to uh, wrist surgery. Right, there we go. Um, the um, we've got a question actually that's relevant to this. Jason Ryder got in touch on Twitter when we said we were doing this and said has asked us to decide which was worse, the twenty eight nil loss to South Africa or the twenty nil loss to England during this period. That's a tough. I. So personally, the England loss was worse for me. Um, we showed um, against uh, in that game. I seem to remember us just having zero clue. Whereas I don't think I think we had more of a clue against South Africa. But they're they're probably equally as bad, really. Eh? Yes, I would agree with that. I just remember South Africa running absolute riot. Yeah. But again, that was what you expected South Africa to do at that point. You still had this mystique of South Africa. You know, you look at some of the players in the South African team at the time, and they still had some phenomenal world-class players. England were horse at that point. Who was and the who was the South African hooker that looked like a big baby? Because he ran right at that game. <laughs> was that not? Was that was even that, if I knew his name, I'm not going to say. He looked like a he looked like Augustus Gloop. Was that Strauss? Strauss, uh, Adrian Strauss. Ricard Strauss, was it? Uh, and he's, well, uh, one of the one of the Strausses played for Ireland, and the other one played for South Africa, and they both oh. looked like giant, blown up baby faces. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Let's have a look. Adrian Strauss, you, I want to check. This is definitely him. 
let's let's make sure this doesn't go out in South Africa as well. I don't. Right, yes, yes, it was Adrian. by the Strauss cousins. I know it was Adrian Strauss. He's yeah, who looks like Augustus Gloop and a giant baby. Uh, but he ran absolutely <laughs> right that. To be fair to him, full credit, he did run right that day. Um, the I think I got fed up uh, after this game with my articles because um, in fact, in fact, this la- next article after the South Africa game. I changed it because I got fed up with Scott Johnson having said he was going to give people a chance and then not giving them a chance. So I said, so I think I did five players who should have been given a chance. And I've written the exact quote from Scott Johnson at the time. He said, as I said, during the tour, we need and want to expand our playing pool. And within that, we have to be clear on which of our long experienced players will make the journey to the World Cup. We have to make sure, too, that our young players who have the ability to play international footy get the mileage on the clock ahead of the World Cup. So that is what Scott Johnson said when the Scotland squad was announced for the autumn tests. It is a quote lifted from an article on the SRU website announcing the 41-man squad at the end of October. As a result, we ran a series of articles looking at which players might be drinking in the last chance saloon. Johnson's rhetoric seemed to promise so much. A chance finally for the likes of Fusaro and MacArthur to put pressure on the incumbents. A chance to see if young bucks like Johnny Gray and Mark Bennett had the potential to step up. A final chance for Nick Deluca to transfer his club form onto the international stage. But it turns out Johnson and his coaching staff had pre-picked the majority of their starting lineups for every game, barring injury. Form was in relevance. So I got—I was quite cross at this point. Um, yeah. so, so I didn't feel like Jeff Jeff Cross, John Welsh, Grant Shields, who was playing for Newcastle Falcons at the time, Chris Fusaro, and um, Pat MacArthur, who I'd have said, aka Scottish Rugby Blog's weekly Ross Ford rant. Um, <laughs> So, so you guys were doing the Ross Ford run way, way before I was yeah, on said, the scene. Uh, that's, I, that's good. No, I, I, this, this is what I wrote at the time. I suggested on Twitter that Ford was starting because Johnson reads the blog and just wanted to annoy me, given that I've had Ford in the last chance saloon for two weeks on the trot. I asked if anyone <laughs> could offer a more plausible explanation. The only plausible, repeatable suggestion was that Ford looks good on the posters. Yeah. <laughs> Strapping young lad. Strapping young lad. This looks, that does, you know, give him credit. Um, was around the time well. Visser was on the posters as well, wasn't he? There was um, a lot of topless posters around this time. Yeah, it's good. Uh, someone in the the SIU marketing uh, department hit a very rich vein around that time. <laughs> How are we going to promote the next game, lads? Take your shirts off. Get in front of that camera. It was always the backs, though. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a strange autumn. That one. I just remember coming out of that one feeling very frustrated. Well, the results weren't weren't very good either. You know, obviously getting absolutely pummeled against South Africa. I think we went into the final game uh, against Australia, kind of fearing fearing the worst. Um, and it was it was a closer match than maybe a lot of people had expected, but mm. we still lost. And by this point, we were. I think you know you've you've kind of touched on it. Johnson was starting to get a bit of a reputation for saying, you know, talking a very good game, but it not really translating onto any sort of action. Um, and I think people are just getting a bit fed up with the platitudes, yeah. which so, sounds very 2019 of me, actually. I think it's Laidlaw, but in the boot, I mean, in behind the thistle, both Laidlaw and Hamilton talk about that Australia game and just not getting any lineup ball at all on, on their own lineup. So this was, I mean, this wasn't a small issue at the time. Yeah, and 
you shouldn't really be letting the Aussies screw you in the, in the set piece. No, never. Um, never. And I mean, it just it, it just added further further smugness to to um, you know Gatlin's decision not to take any Scots to the to Australia in the previous summer because you know we couldn't couldn't do them over at home. So yeah. That was the point. Now, do you want to hear a very interesting, funny fact about that Australia game? Go on then. So the Scottish Rugby Blog ran a competition in 2014 to win two tickets to said Scotland-Australia game. And none other than myself actually won those tickets way before really? it was wow. way before it was associated with the blog. Yeah. Oh, it's like it's like when it's like when uh, they show you old clips of EastEnders and somebody who came back later as a main character was like playing playing a kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was it. I was I was I was ready to go from that point, but yeah, that's uh, myself and my, my my lovely wife headed headed on through on the on the Scottish Rugby Bogs uh, generosity. So it was good good day out. Did you have a nice day out, John? I was going to say, was we had good... a lovely day out. Yeah, we we um, stopped off, picked up our tickets, went and had a lovely lunch um, in town, and then uh, yes, soaked up the hospitality. Then got a. Uh, a pre-booked bus back with the Bishopton Rugby guys, uh, which was absolute carnage. So. <laughs> Can imagine. And then you, and then you just, you know, obviously that inspired you to write for the blog, so that's good. Exactly. Yes. So there you go. Look out for any competitions, guys, because that, that might be the inspiration you need. Um, Change your life, man. <laughs> so we we move on to um, Scotland's. Uh, sorry, Scott Johnson's last tournament in charge before Big Vern comes in and takes over. I remember, now this is the thing, I remember Scott Johnson's time in charge lasting more than two Six Nations, a summer tour and an autumn test. It felt like it went on for years. <laughs> I was surprised looking back at just how short it was. Yeah. Um, the Six Nations, this is a bad Six Nations. Yeah, this was very bad. This is a bad one. So open, open against Ireland um, with... Um, the a loss of I'm trying to find the score now. They're twenty eight six. Twenty eight six, yeah. And I mean in the book you've got guys talk like David Denton saying it was a complete roller coaster. After the first game against Allen, we didn't feel that bad. Maybe it looked different from the outside, but we thought we played some pretty decent rugby. We were unlucky with a few calls and the bounce of the ball didn't favour us. We came out of that one with a bit of positivity. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Not entirely sure. Yeah, it's the future of uh, highbrow rugby podcasting. Uh, speaking there, guys. <laughs> yeah, and then this, we've already alluded to it: the twenty nil England game. I think now is this Chris Fusaro's one and only um, Scotland cap, or did he get on again? That's a very good question. He didn't get. If he did get on again, he didn't get many more than this. But um, he, yes, he, oh, no. It, <laughs> so his wiki page doesn't even mention that he got the cap. <laughs> 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 uh, there you go. That's how bad wiki is, guys. Um, yeah, showing my skills here. Four, four, four caps. Yeah, yeah. Two in the Six Nations. This is the one I remember because I remember him going, hey, basically, Scott, this was, I think this must have been his debut 
Because again, this felt a bit like Scott Johnson caving into fan pressure, who'd been calling for Chris Fusaro and going, right, I'm going to throw him up against Billy Vunapolo, see how he does, just to show you all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that English back row is not not anything to be trifled with. Vunapola, Rob Shaw and Tom Wood. That uh, They also, they had picked Uther Burrell in the centre, who is not a small man. They were not going for subtlety, let's be honest. And poor wee Fuzzy got absolutely moored. The, um, now, I've just noticed that another article I was reading just to see um, just to see what we were writing this time. And um, I forgot the SRU were forced to issue a statement backing Scott Johnson after the Calcutta Cup match. It was that <laughs> really? bad. Yeah. So they put out a public statement backing Scott Johnson after the loss. Which is never a good yeah. sign. I mean, you you were writing five key points for fixing Scottish rugby after the Calcutta. Yeah, plus, you know, <laughs> which that was... sets, sets the tone really. And Brody, <laughs> yeah. Brody was uh, Brody was uh, was calling yeah calling for uh, Scott Johnson's Scott head. Johnson's head, which I'm sure is what prompted the response from the SRU. <laughs> yeah, I've said um, they needed to review Scott Johnson's position because there was no evidence that he'd done um, anything. Um, more pro teams, which I, I don't know what I must have been drinking at this point. Um, the stop foreign imports. I don't. In fact, I think I was against um, more pro teams. Actually, when I read it, because uh, we could afford it. Stop foreign imports. I think. Uh, well, I can't remember what I was for or against that. And develop Scottish coaches, and then relegation for the Six Nations. I think I might have been. I don't I don't take drugs, but but I was clearly on something when I wrote that article. <laughs> I think few pure I was driven by pure fury at the uh, at Scott Johnson. Um, well, I mean, it didn't uh, didn't get that much better. Only Dunkey Weir saved saved the blushes with his with his drop goal, didn't he? That was the Italy game, wasn't it? Yes, the last minute drop goal where he not where he knocked it over. Um, can Can you just remember the wee bit of history that was made that day, though? No. No, so uh, that was the day that um, Alex Dunbar set, at the time, the record for the fastest ever Scottish rugby player uh, when he scored his try, uh, his first try. Um, now, admittedly, they'd only been tracking it for three years, so it wasn't as big an accolade as it sounded like, but it was reported in the press like it was, you know, some magnificent achievement, um, Dunbar strolling, strolling home. Uh, he clocked in... I had it in front of me. Uh, I'll, I'll dig it out again. But he, he, he clocked in. It was quite quite a reasonable speed, actually. For, uh, it was before Alex Dunbar absolutely put on quite a lot of chunk and started to become a back row. Yeah. There must have been some controversy around um, Scottish imports at this time as well, because this is, this is when I came up with the Scottish rugby blog Scottishness test. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that article. <laughs> such a good one yeah and then you had to basically it's multiple choice um and you could find out how scottish you were uh based on that i I think it was just feel free to go and try it readers yeah if you want to go and go and search for it um the fry in the book i mean come back to behind the thistle that dave dent as well talking about the france game that scotland were in complete control um and that, that scotland had a stranglehold on the game and I don't I don't again I don't I don't remember it going that way because this was such a bad Six Nations but maybe it was I mean were we positive I mean it's 17-19 I think to at Murrayfield 
maybe I'm misremembering it. Did we were we kind of on the we, for the French game? Yeah, were we positive on the blog after that? Um, reasonably, um, France were poor and definitely beatable, but in the end, they got out of jail, or perhaps we put ourselves in jail. Same old, same old uh, story, typical of the of this sort of uh, this kind of era. Um, yeah, yeah I think we were probably we were just kind of used to more more of the same by that point. There was still a kind of there was a debate over the back row blend. Fizarro had started to he'd looked good in a couple of appearances that he'd had in the Six Nations, um, but uh, yeah, there were, there was lack of go forward. I think was the usual. Um, yeah, the usual problem. Giving away silly penalties as well. I think in the next silly article penalties. I was writing was saying they'd given away thirteen penalties against France in the first three in very kickable positions. So despite the high penalty count, Big Jim Hamilton only gave away one penalty the whole match. A personal best. Well done, Jim. <laughs> well done, Jim. Um, the next game, though, the Wales game. Now, this is... Oh, oh here we go. Oh. The, this is kind of like... This This is what sparks Stuart Hogg's kind of... Um, it's like he's desert ta- his desert tapes almost. <laughs> takes himself off. Because um, he gets... Now, I remember this being earlier in the 23rd minute that this happened, but it's t- in 23 minutes he takes Dan Bigger off the ball in the air um, yep. and gets red. And it initially yellow carded, but then um, Jerome Garcet... Is it Jerome Garcet? Yes. Jerome Garcet, yep. Watches we- it on the big screen and then upgrades it to a red. Now, I'm not sure you could do that at that stage, but nonetheless he did it. I don't know if you can do it now, can you? You're not really meant to. You're meant to refer it to the... the- this yeah, television yeah, official, and then you can, but he's already issued the yellow, so the kind of punishment was gone. But these, you know, the referees do what the hell they want. Yeah, the um, I've got Stuart Hogg says it was the lowest point of his career in the book. Um, Al Strokosh, um, Greg Laidock describes it as a humiliation. I think this was the um. This also this game is really interesting because it also I think sparked a lot of animosity between Wales and Scotland that still kind of still quite I think this is where the real niggle comes from this game because I mean, Al Strokosh in the book is talking about the way that the uh, Wales players um, reacted to it. He said that they were kind of set that they were celebrating after the match and they were swat. Yeah, they said we we got humiliated and we had them swan diving over the line and singing to each other at the after match meal. It was a big insult, a big slap in the face. Anything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. And I think other players have talked about that afterwards, that the the behaviour of the Wales players at that dinner really kind of didn't sit well with them. And yeah. then the next... Because I think the next game... I'm trying to think. Yeah, because the next game is, I think, is is uh, the, the very first Finiscent, I think. Again, Dan Bigger in the air. Yeah, will be, yep. And that yeah. was a testy game. Yeah, I mean, when you look through the list of the players in that Welsh team, I don't necessarily think it's a surprise that there was maybe a wee bit of showboating and a wee bit of um, what have you. Um, thinking of the fullback, the ten, the nine in particular. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, can you be referring to? Uh, well, I read recently. Is it spray tan? 
<laughs> yes. Um, I read recently someone uh, was it, they were talking about Gatlin's uh, legacy. Uh, it might have been Sam Warburton actually talking about uh, about William Williams and Gatlin pulling him aside and giving him the 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 full look, mate. You really need to stop being such a wee plat. Um, and I don't know if it's worked. No. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> to think what I mean. How would the Scotland of today would they cope any better losing a player with a red to a red card twenty minutes in? I would imagine they would very very sensibly replace their fullback though. It was yeah. ta- tactical suicide what they done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, this one reminded me a little bit. This this was the feeling watching this game was very similar to the feeling watching the um, watching the the Twickenham game that was was to come under under Cotter's, Cotter's reign. It was just one of those something. Somebody has a rush of blood to the head early on, and you just you just know that the that the game is gone at that point, just because of who the opponents are and because we're familiar with our team. This might have been actually one of the first kind of. This was one of the games that set that set that mindset in 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 me and, and in certain Scotland rugby supporters. I think you know that you know some teams can can come back from it. I mean, we've seen Glasgow do it, come back, yep. you know, go go a man down, and you thought now Glasgow will be able to cope with this because of the way they were playing at the time. But Scotland at, at that time um, just didn't kind of have the didn't have the wherewithal to to cope with that again. So it was a very experienced Welsh team. Yeah. Yeah, who had won a lot of a lot of tournaments and had obviously were playing very very well. Were was it was it 2015 when they so the World Cup when they were were they second in the world? They were approaching that part. You know they were they were on a very good run. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I guess I guess for me, you know, right, you go down to Wales and you get beaten. That's kind of the Scottish lot. That's how we do things recently, but um, or not even recently, <laughs> more than recently. Um, but to do it in that fashion, particularly, is so so frustrating because you've got. I'm just looking at the team list just now. You've got Dougie Fife on the right wing. Oh my goodness, right. Less said about that, the better. But can cover fullback. You've got Jack Carthbert on the bench. Can cover fullback. Duncan Taylor can cover fullback. Uh, Duncan Weir has even played fullback. So you know. There was there was options there, and I think there's a justification in the book around the tactical decision not to to replace Hogg or not to, certainly to shuffle the pack around. Um, and I remember watching the tries, and they just it was numbers, it was pure numbers. And because we didn't have the fullback, they, they were just running through us and could score at will. It mm. was nonsense. It's um, I mean, I suppose from the. Looking back at the Scott Johnson era, he blooded a lot of players. That much Seven, 17. 17 debut, debuts under Scott Johnson. Mm. He could have blooded a lot more, I think, though, in that period. The whole kind of like the incumbents need to watch their backs thing, I don't... I, I, I think there's a lot of bluster around that and not much follow-through. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they still... He stuck to, you know, midfield... Players that had maybe, um, I mean, I know Matt Scott had his problems with injury and stuff, but Scott and Dunbar was a was a, a partnership that seemed to be doing quite well at the start of his tenure. But you know, at the end, he was still going back to guys like Nick DeLuca, Max Evans, who hadn't really 
hadn't really um, performed. Um, obviously, yeah. we know Duncan Taylor is a is a supreme player. Maybe wasn't quite as as well rounded at that point. But um, you know, if he'd had a, if he'd had a bunch of caps playing alongside, I mean, he did have some games playing also alongside Dunbar. Um, but if he'd had, you know, if he'd had a lot more, um, because the midfield, the midfield was was a problem for for quite a while. Um, this was the he, period that they were crying. So Bennett was absolutely tearing up trees at Glasgow at the time as yeah. well. And I mean, his nickname at the point of Glasgow was God, just just simply God. He was that good, and we were all totally flummoxed as to why he couldn't get near a squad. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you you probably look at the players that ended up in tw- the twenty fifteen World Cup squad, and and like I said, Mark Bennett is one of those players that absolutely. Well, he was nominated for IRB Young Player of the Year that year, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Yep. So it's hard. I mean, it, I think certainly Scotland started playing more attacking rugby under Johnson, but it's hard to know how much of this was. Was Johnson was doing a consultation with Cotter, paving the way for Cotter, Cotter to come in and take over with basically an eighteen-month run at the World Cup. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, I also think a lot of the and this is it's, it's always the accusation that's levelled against international coaches that predominantly pick from single teams but the progress that Glasgow were making at the time they were they'd you know they made 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 the final in um 2013-14 then they won it 14-15 a lot of the players you're seeing making debuts under Johnson are Glasgow players the the proportion of people from Glasgow in the side starts to creep up there's a lot to be said for that success that Glasgow were having at the time, you know, that winning mentality starting to bleed into the the national team. And I think it's maybe it's going to sound really harsh, but I'm going to go there. With a with a competent coach at that time, I think our results could have been much better. Mm. Yeah, that's fair, Rory. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean it's there the, he didn't really he didn't really revolutionise as much as he could have done. Um, I think, you know, the the opportunity was there, but the the problem was that it wasn't really his revolution to start. It was Cotter's. And that was, you know, so, I mean, to a certain extent, he was probably hamstrung by the inability to secure Cotter at the time they wanted him um, in terms of what what his, perhaps his ambitions were. I mean, like, uh, like John said, he did, he did, Blood a few a few players, but there were a fair few other ones who he could have he could have maybe helped to grow the depth a bit in in certain positions. Um, at the same time as he was doing that, he was obviously laying the groundwork for the academies and all that stuff, which are perhaps the kind of more positive aspects of his of his legacy as a director of rugby. Um, but yeah, as a as a coach, I think probably that that uh, that disastrous final Six Nations is probably going to be the uh, the kind of the lasting memory. I suppose the intro. I mean, the intro. That's an interesting point because there's the recent uh, interview that Jamie Lyle did, Lyle did over on Rugby Pass with Jason O'Halloran around the um, the state of Scottish rugby because as Jason O'Halloran leaves Glasgow to go and coach in Japan, and O'Halloran's kind of 
his his main the main takeaway for me from that article is the academy system in Scotland is still flawed and is still too reliant on too Edinburgh centric and too reliant on private schools. And I think yes. if that's you, I, I wonder whether how, how, you know we can. I think as much as we all said, well, Scott Johnson's coming and he's you know he's, he's put in the academy system, but. I think, yes, it's th- th- that's shown results, but, and there's a big but, you know, could any would anybody else have done the same thing? Or could people, again, uh, you know, would a more competent director of rugby have done things differently? When Halloran's talking about the borders being massively underutilised and there being this focus in Edinburgh, now would a, a more competent director of rugby have cast the net wider and looked at how you harness talent in those areas i mean our best two players of the last you know couple of decades Stuart hogg and finn russell neither of them have come through the school system yeah i I think that's it's a very common mistake that people i think there's a, a bit of a bubble that surrounds edinburgh at times and you know obviously a lot of very very good players have maybe not necessarily come through the private school system, but certainly have went to the private school system in Edinburgh. And, you know, Jason Halloran's rightly pointing out that there is a bit of a misalignment with just because there's more private schools over in Edinburgh. It seems that players, you know, players naturally move over there, they get the opportunities over there, and then they're they're based in that part of the country and the the academies are right the way across Scotland. So it does seem yeah, a I mean, bit I think, strange. I think it's I think it, J- Jason's point was the kind of um you know the, the schools attract the bet attract the bet the the young players who are, you know, looking for to pursue a career in in professional rugby and then obviously the schools are tied to the clubs and the clubs those clubs all feed to Edinburgh because of the catchment area I feel like. Um, and that you know he felt that that's kind of unfair disadvantage to Glasgow, and that Glasgow should be allowed to to sort of to intercept them between school and club, if you like, and yeah. and and have an equal access to talent. I think it also has a knock-on effect for say the East Region as well, which is you know obviously includes Edinburgh as well, because then the 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 talent, the kind of flow of talent is all coming from the schools. And anybody who isn't snapped up by the schools and maybe develops later, or you know, has a growth spurt and hasn't been kind of sucked up by the schools, then has a harder job getting kind of past the you know past the the yeah. the, the, the people come through the school system. Yeah. I mean, that's something that Luke Crosby was talking about, you know, and he was in he was at Falkirk, which would kind of come under the Edinburgh region i guess it's kind of on the uh, it, it would too it would we'll, we'll, we'll take that <laughs> it's um you know and he's talking about the you know how how much he felt like he was overlooked by because people you know the coaches that are looking at the youth teams are, are the are, you know i've got more experience with dealing with the schools than they have dealing with clubs in the area so i do think it's it's an issue and i think it's something that john's i mean scott I mean, the SRU have have never really addressed rugby in the borders properly, and and that's not a hundred percent the SRU's fault because I think there is still a lot of tribalism in in Scotland. When you look at the reaction to to Mel- the resistance, I think in the borders to Melrose trying to represent the whole region. I think there are other issues in the borders other than the SRU, but I, I don't think Johnson really. 
I think that that would be his biggest feeling. Is yes, he's put the academies in place, but and they've produced some good players, but I don't think they've done that consistently across all positions. I think we are still light in the front row beyond you know once you kind of take away a couple of like the, the WP Nels that we've had to bring in as project players, we still you know. Struggle at scrum half a little bit. I mean, you've got George Hall and Ali Price and Jamie Dobie, but you've got nobody coming through Edinburgh at all. Fly half, we are, you know, we, we've got Adam Hastings and Finn Russell, but there's nobody else coming through. So there are there are obvious flaws because if if he set them up properly and he'd put, done it correctly, we would have depth in pretty much all positions. Yeah, the theory is that you should use... There's, there's four, four academies four academy um, hubs, the theory is you should have four players coming through at any given point for each of the positions, if not more. And the reality is, you know, again, you say Adam Hastings. Adam Hastings went to school in England. He was mm. he was in the he was in the Bath Academy. We've, we've managed to get him back to Scotland um, because Glasgow were able to give him a professional contract. The, the reality is that players and the Super Six hasn't hasn't done this any favours either. And I know there's a lot of disquiet on... Um, it will not surprise you there's disquiet on, on my side of the MA with, with this setup, but the, the way that young players are being allocated to the pro clubs just doesn't sit well with our side of the MA just now. Um, particularly, there's the... the um, two really I think um, I can't remember the names but there's a couple of really decent players that are rumoured to be heading to Edinburgh um, in the back row and again you're sitting going if Edinburgh need anything um, they need they need a 10 they probably need um, another 9 they certainly don't need another back row mm-hmm. well, that's one thing Scotland have been good at it's almost like Scott Johnson set out to create an academy system that purely produces back rows and if it accidentally produces some good players in other positions <laughs> then that's a good thing yeah. it's, it's, it's the next evolution from the playing three sevens <laughs> it's to have a 15 sevens and that links beautifully into your Twitter thing Cam doesn't it my Twitter yeah. thing uh, your 50, 15 players uh, oh, name, of course, name, yeah. a, name a player who could play who, all 15 if you had 15 of them could could make a decent rugby team yeah chunk i went for yeah i think yeah you, you quite rightly went for richie Vern. um I quite right greatly pointed out you're wrong yeah i'd still i'd still back chunk to be honest i know <laughs> team of chunks i mean we talked we talked way way uh a couple of weeks ago about how he was first receiver so he's, he's fine to stand off <laughs> yeah brother. yeah I've, I've no doubt that he would have uh, absolutely we would have won a world cup by now if that had been the case what? Put John Welsh as the backup ten on the bench. Point, yeah. <laughs> we chip and chase, I. Yeah. But do they have a Game of Thrones style uh, blurb about them? That's that's the thing. You need to like, if you're going to pick a team of one player, you need to get like Game of Thrones style titles for them, list their achievements. It's really important. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's probably it for Scott Johnson. I've got one one uh, follow up tweet from a Welshman who says, as a Welshman. This is the, his uh, his legacy of Scott Johnson. As a Welshman, thank you for taking him away. The only time he ever engineered a Welsh win was when he coached you guys against us. <laughs> so there you go. He's a beloved in Wales also. Who was that? Who was, who's tweeted that to us? We should give that him. was Lawrence. Lawrence, thank you very much, Lawrence, for getting in touch. Um, 
Yeah, most mostly it's just screaming sc- pictures of, of screaming gifts in your mentions, Rory, when you said that. <laughs> yeah. You said we're doing this tonight. Um, yeah, the um, we did have another tweet, which is a bit of a follow up to our um, talk of the Toonie Book Club episode, which was from uh, Der Kaiser, uh, who says, uh, or at Badger Vindaloo on Twitter, who said the uh, talk of the Toonie is available for sale in on Amazon in the US at between sixty and nine hundred dollars. Which is pretty impressive. Well, there you go. If you're looking to looking to fund Christmas this year, guys, get on Amazon US and sell your copies. Two new <laughs> two new from nine hundred and thirty dollars and thirty five cents plus three dollars ninety nine shipping. So you would think that Finn Russell was getting paid enough at racing without having to like, punt his copy of Talk of the Toonie, wouldn't you? <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> that's it from us for this week. We, we'll be back next week. We haven't quite uh, worked out what we're going to do or what we're going to talk about. Any suggestions, get in touch. We might cover some rugby news. Who knows? We, um, we could do a, do a match report on a Highlanders game. That's true, yes. Maybe we should do that. For the moment, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Rory and John. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cheers, guys. That was good. <laughs>